So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Hope you're very well. Thank you so much to all of you who got in touch with your feedback on last week's episode, I Was a Child Soldier. Seemed to really touch a nerve, as it did with me as well. I think it's a, a really interesting subject, this issue of the army recruiting kids. Uh, Phil, for example, wrote on my Facebook wall, facebook.com slash Man. He says, a younger member of my family joined the army at 16 and has now blossomed beyond what we all expected of him, brimming with pride and confidence. No one under the age of 18 can be deployed on active service, and my impression of the first two years is it's an excellent method of meaningful further education. Phil says, I think we had the make of a young thug who now has a useful and productive future. Look, it is the other side of the debate, isn't it? I mean, Wayne last week was talking about how when he left the army, he felt he had nothing open to him as an option, and he had post-traumatic stress disorder. Clearly, though, um, you know, for some people, it puts them on a road that might be better than whatever career they were potentially going to end up in in the first place, particularly a life of crime. A guy called Frank has been in touch as well. He says, when I signed on, I signed a blank check to my queen and country up to and including my death or maiming, whether mental or physical, for the duration of my term of service. I did this with my mind and eyes wide open and in full knowledge of the possible consequences of my actions. I think my favourite tweet, though, was from Tom, who said simply, Ollie, I was a recruiter in the Navy. I used to visit schools, uh, colleges and unis. Your interview with Wayne was really powerful stuff. Uh, so thank you, everyone. If you do enjoy any of our interviews in particular, please do share them with your friends. That is how we get this show out to as many people as possible. Uh, On to other matters. James from Camden's been in touch regarding last week's zeitgeist. He says, I just wanted to stand up for my hometown, Camden, which made the list of Britain's pervious towns. Uh, Camden's always had a rep, but it's not the funkily dressed who sin. It's any single man you see not dressed as a punk, goth, emo or cyberpunk who's a perv, according to my sister. Um, so there we go uh, we've put the record straight on that one uh, also another James a guy called James Court who I went to school with uh, he's contacted me to say that when I said last week that I'd never been to Norwich that isn't true because in 1998 I was in a school production of the Beggar's Opera and we did go on tour for one night to the Norwich Puppet Theatre. He's uh, absolutely right, James. I had forgotten. Uh, thank you. Uh, right, this week's feature interview is with the obituaries editor of The Times. So if you've ever wondered uh, how 
the newspapers store up their celebrity profiles ready to publish at the moment a famous name pops their clogs. Uh, This is the podcast for you. Also this week, you will learn whether Bill Bryson has taken out British citizenship. You'll learn when John Logie Baird first demonstrated the television. And you'll learn what a purple pass is. Yes, it's a sex thing. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. Obituaries are not just about recognising the recently dead. It's about entertaining the readers. How does the paper of record go about documenting the dead? All this time you think your fiddling and diddling has been turning me right on. It's been turning me off like a light switch. And what if your sex drive vastly exceeds your partner's? Alex Fox has the answers. But first, it's the man who used to suck tea out of a penguin biscuit. It's Ollie Pitt with the Zeitgeist. Hi, Ollie. What are the big trends of the week? Mimaganda. What does that mean? So, I'm going to tell you about a woman called Maxine Waters. Have you heard of her? I haven't. Okay, so she is a 78 year old Los Angeles member of Congress. Okay, not okay. normally your wheelhouse. She has been in office for some 40 years or so. She has become the face that is the resistance to Donald Trump. What do you mean she's become the face? She has quite a look on her. She does this thing where she sort of looks through the top of her, like Judge Judy. She looks oh, through the yeah. top of her glasses, yeah, right? over the top of the glasses. Yeah, yeah. Look. yeah. And, uh, and, and what, what they've done is in the meme font at the bottom, it says, looking Maxine-ly. For me, it's interesting because actually it identifies something which is much, much bigger. And I'm sure you're aware of this. It is the weaponization of the meme. And the reason that they're using memes uh, to spread political propaganda is because they lack scrutiny. You mean it's just a really simple argument? Yeah, well, it distills a really complex idea into a single image often or a phrase. And it spreads so quickly that actually any kind of fact checking on that doesn't happen. And that and that's really bad. So like her, for example, she she was actually branded as one of the most corrupt people in Congress not that long ago. And now she's the hero of the Democrats mm. because people have seen this image and gone, yeah, they might not have known her at all before. I mean, you've never heard of her. No. And now she's absolutely dominating the Internet in certain circles, of course. But she's become this figurehead for it. I think that politicians will get just better and better at this. They're going to hire really intelligent people. This is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. This is this is a little bit of a prediction, right? They're going to try and distill their messages, their policies into these single memes and spread it out there and get people on their side using the meme. Because it is a very, very powerful means of communicating. Okay, but they've always, haven't they, hired spin doctors who are straight out of the country's top universities to try and get a complicated political idea distilled into a tabloid headline. Yes. It's just now they're going to have to do it in three words and a funny picture as well. Yeah, but when they did that originally, that was under press scrutiny. So people would look at that headline and go, oh, hang on a minute. Let's see, let's see what's behind that. And the trouble with memes at the moment is that they tend to avoid that. And I think what needs to change now is people need to go, right, if you see something like that that comes up in your feed or whatever, I think it's the responsibility... Mm. Of you, people listening, to actually check. Fact check it. Okay, what else have you got for us this week? Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is a, uh, an animated TV series. It's for adults, basically. And uh, it first premiered in 2015, which makes me sound like I'm out of date, but I'm not. Uh, and it's shown on a network called Adult Swim. Have you heard of Adult Swim? I have heard of Adult Swim because when I'm in the States... I don't know if you can get it here. Can you get it here? Oh, yeah. Well, I've been on their website and I can watch some of the stuff on there. Get it? Okay, yes. Yeah. So their website works here in Britain. But when I'm in the States, if I'm in a hotel room and I turn on the telly, 
I think it's the equivalent of, you know, when CBeebies turns off at 7pm and you just get a black screen here. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the States, there's a children's network that turns off at whatever it is, 10pm, and becomes Adult Swim. So they carry on showing cartoons, uh... but it's cartoons for adults. And they're all kind of South Park, but not quite as good. Well... This one, Rick and Morty, so it, it was created by uh, two guys, you probably know their names. You might know their names. Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon. You I did not. Dan Harmon produced the television series called Community on NBC. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what they did back in 2014 is they wrote a parody of Back to the Future and they uh, had The Doc and um, Marty, right? And then they got approached and, said, and they were like, oh, can you, can you come up with an idea? And they went, yeah, okay this idea but we'll change their names to rick and marty why are we talking about this okay we're talking about this because on april fool's day they punked all their fans by releasing they haven't released an episode since 2015 Uh they decided to release their brand new episode implying that the new series was out and then they just pulled it away the snapchat of tv they just got rid of it like that but what, once things have been on TV, they often are pulled away anyway. Yeah, but then you can watch them on like iPlayer and stuff. Sometimes. But this is it. Gone forever, they're saying. Absolutely. Just that's oh, it. Oh, they're never going to release it on DVD or on demand? Apparently so. But it was just one episode. One episode. up for I think it was up for like 24 hours. But I started looking into it because I wanted to find out what it was about. And um, it turns out that this is a bit of a cult hit. It is a mashup of The Simpsons and Futurama. And in fact, the guy that wrote it, Dan Harmon, he actually describes it as that. So you've got like this sci-fi futuristic weird side where they're like fighting aliens and blowing stuff up. Mm. And then you've got like The Simpsons family dilemmas, family values things going on as well at the same time. So I guess this is well done to them backslap for their promotional technique. Absolutely, yeah. Putting it's something my, up on April It's Fools. my tip of the week. The April Fool's Day online thing is interesting, isn't it? Because... I remember kind of 10 years ago, Google always do it, don't they? They always do a a stunt on April Fool's Day. Yeah. And I remember 10 years ago, it was just a stunt that didn't have to mean anything. It was just, uh, it was April Fool's Day. So today we're going to send you all an email saying we've launched a new service where you can hail cabs using your nose or whatever. And then it got more complex. and, And now all of the big corporations, people turn to them to do quite lavish internet april fools jokes because for it to look convincing there needs to be a blog where the development team talk about how they created this new service there needs to be a youtube video showing you how you can use the new service (laughs) there needs to be a hashtag so that it looks convincing there needs to be celebrity brand ambassadors you just think christ the amount of time they're putting into this quite bad joke on april fool's day they could actually genuinely develop something good my favorite website pornhub did a really good April Fool's prank. I've thought it'd been a while since you mentioned yeah. them. For users that were uh, masturbating uh, over their content the other day, they had a pop-up that came up and said that they've, re- they've released automatic video sharing onto Facebook, right? And it pops up <laughs> and it says, like, and those people, like, shit themselves. Like, oh, my God, it's going to post it onto Facebook. Okay, what else have we got this week? Holographic phone calls. Okay, well, that's never going to happen. Well, it has happened, Ollie. On Monday, two companies, KT and Verizon, held the world's first live holographic phone call on a 5G network. See, now the real story there is 5G, isn't it? But that's boring because it's about cell towers. So boring! So boring, it's hard to understand how it works. Whereas holographic phone call, that's something people can say and and then people get excited about, but actually isn't going to catch on because I don't want to do it, that's why. Like FaceTime, that's good, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it won't look like you. If it really looked like like in a hundred years' time, yes. If I could literally feel like I'm looking and talking to you, yes. Mm-hmm. But if you look like something on Star Trek, black and white and shaky and weird, I'm guessing that's what it looked like, then why bother? That uh, actually leads me really nicely onto my game. Right. Because 
Yes, the technology is interesting, but come on, when are we going to see it? It's probably going to be quite a long time before it's actually commercially available and any good. Mm. So, so, my game is called yes. Guess the Gap. And what you've got to do is you've got to guess in years the gap between when a an invention was first showcased oh. to when it was first commercially available. This is actually quite a good game. Right. Yeah. Okay, ready? Yes. The mobile phone. Guess the gap. I think I've seen the documentary about that. I think that was the Vodafone guy. Motorola. In any case, I think that puts it in late 70s, early 80s. And I think available commercially eight years later. So guess the gap. It was (laughs) 10 years. Oh, So it was first showcased in 1973, first commercially available in 1983. Okay, I was close enough. (gasps) The laptop. I'm going to guess 14 years. Seven years. Oh, okay. 1968. And then in 1975... IBM 5100. I bet that was like the size of a sofa. They called it a laptop. But... Laptop, but it gave you chronic shin pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because a pocket calculator then was like the size of a dog. Yeah. And finally. TV. Oh. The TV set. Okay. Televisuano. That's not a word. Black and white telly first demonstrated. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, just after the Second World War. I'm going to say 1948. First commercially available, I'm going to say 1950. Five? I know it was there for the coronation. Mm. Seven years again. Wrong. Right. The answer is two years. Two years? Yes, the gap. Well, apparently, the first TV demo was in 1926 by a Scottish inventor called John Logie Baird. Yes, yeah. 1928 was the first commercially available TV sets, but they look horrendous, and I'm pretty sure they don't work. Well, you see, they were probably the 5G holographic phones of their day, weren't they? I mean, that is actually a good one to end on, because that there you go. Like So they were technically available two years afterwards, but in reality, it was probably sort of 20, 30 years by the time anyone actually had one. Well, even getting to that point, like the precursors to TV tech was sort of went back as far as 1880. Yeah. So they were doing all these, but that was really shit. Like you could make out anything. Imagine what this section will become in 80 years time. It'll be amazing. Until then, if you have a suggestion for next week's Zeitgeist, what should you do? You can uh, tweet us at The Modern Man on Twitter, of course. Yeah, yeah. You can't tweet anywhere else. No. Uh, or alternatively, upload your brain and then email it me. See you next week. Bye. Hello, man fans. I'm Ed Kimber. I'm a food writer, cookbook author, and food stylist. You may also possibly, maybe not, have heard of me as I am the first winner of the Great British Bake Off back in 2010. These are my top three Squarespace life hacks for cooking anything in your kitchen. Uh, number one is to make sure that you read the recipe at least twice and then get your ingredients together ahead of starting the recipe. It's a really basic, basic thing, but I'm amazed by the amount of people who don't prepare properly and then end up getting very stressed as they're cooking. It leads to you going, crap, I've forgotten that I haven't got any baking powder and you've already started a recipe. And it's basically borrowing from the professional world because nobody in a, in a restaurant kitchen will ever start a recipe before everything is weighed out and prepared because everything goes quicker, easier, and you are just generally less likely to make mistakes. My second one is highbrow in a stupid way but it's someone once gave me a piece of advice which was uh, don't worry about making mistakes I find personally and I try and show the people that I teach how to bake that actually you learn a lot more by making a mistake than you do from a success 
I used to run macaron classes, which are you know supposedly a very very hard thing to make. I would see people coming along to a class, and with having me there and teaching them how to do it, they would have a very successful time. And then they would never make them again. They would just assume they can. And then six months later, they would email me and say, "Oh no, what's happened?" Same sort of thing as muscle memory, but I think when you make mistakes, you understand what's gone wrong. Unless you burn a cake, it's butter, sugar, eggs, and flour. It's still going to taste damn good, you know. Unless it's black and crusted over with charcoal, I'll still eat it. So you know, don't worry about it too much. <laughs> and finally, number three, find a trusted food blog. The reason my career is the way it is is all to do with the internet. I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for the fact that I used to have a little blog. But there are now so many places to find recipes, whether that be in magazines, newspapers, cookbooks, whatever. Finding a source that you trust is really important because not everybody tests their recipes the same. So if you find one where you know they're tested well, you know you have success with those recipes, it puts you in a position of confidence. And there are hundreds of amazing ones where the people who write them write them to a very high degree, test the recipes very very well, and then the rest of them that just kind of cobble a recipe together and throw it online and. I think with people who aren't necessarily very confident, being able to trust the recipes they're using is a really important thing. For more recipes and advice on cooking and specifically baking, check out my website at theboywhobakes.co.uk, where you can also find my podcast, which is called Stir the Pot. You can start your own website with Squarespace today with a free two-week trial, and use the code MAN, that's M-A-N-N, to get ten percent off. Now. Obituary writers have been rather busy of late. Carrie Fisher, Prince, Muhammad Ali. It seems as the world's baby boomers are reaching a certain age, every week brings with it news of another dead celeb. When it comes to recording those deaths, there is, in the UK anyway, a clear paper of record. The Times. Of London, their obituaries editor is Simon Pearson, originating from a small mining town in North Nottinghamshire, not exactly a hotbed of journalism. He set his sights on a career as a hack from the age of eleven, when a family friend travelled to Vietnam to cover the after effects of the war. After studying journalism, Simon worked his way up from the Mansfield Chronicle advertiser to become night editor. At the Times, and now on to his current position. So, with so many big names dying all the time, how does he choose who to write about? There are the great and the good, and the really famous who you you have to cover. Everyone knows them, whether it's the Queen, or whether it's a former Prime Minister, or whether it's a、um, very well-known actor, or whether it's one of your top QCs. And then you've got a huge range of people, some of whom automatically come onto your radar because people phone up,、um, they put their names in the death notices, and they are pretty well known、uh, in their sphere.、Mm. And you commission those、uh, obituaries. So sometimes people phone up. And do they pay to put a death notice in? Yes, the death notice is、um, a sort of small classified advert、mm. in which they announce the death of、uh, of somebody, and often、um, you find out about quite prominent people through、mm. through the death notice, and that alerts you to it. Yes. Yeah. You, what, what are you looking for when you're looking at your own death notices, thinking, "Ah, there's a story there." Well, there are two things. You're looking for relatively well-known people whose deaths have not been announced on. Radio, television, 
uh, on the, in the news pages of the newspapers. And you're looking for interesting lives, a hint of a story. Because after all, obituaries are not just about recognising the recently dead. It's about entertaining the readers with colourful stories of people's lives. I mean, one of the most important things we consider when weighing up whether to carry an obituary or not is, was this person interesting? And whereas once upon a time, I think judges, generals, air marshals and MPs automatically got an obituary, that's not the case. Um, If someone's been an MP for a long time, but actually are not very interesting, we'll say, well, let's not bother. So there's a change going on. And when you say you're looking for a story, so what makes you prick up your ears? What are the kind of details that you think, aha? I think operating in oddball areas of life. It's a bit like you and your podcast, looking (laughs) for people from uh, sort of different uh, areas of uh, endeavour. Uh, which are going to interest your readers because they don't know very much about them. For example, I think uh, a few years ago we came across a chap on a council estate in Redditch who was making the finest fly fishing rods in the world and making probably no more than 15 or 20 a year. And you know some of the very rich businessmen from Japan, etc., would come through this council estate to his back room mm. uh, and choose a rod, uh, most unusual. And he made a good story. So you're looking for people who have a different story to tell. And how do you tell that story? Because that's not one you can research easily using the internet, is it? That's not one you no, can find archive you, you come, you material come, about. You come across them by accident. Um, I think with that one, we had a keen fisherman who had bought a rod off him and heard he had died and thought we ought to know about it. And so, and it was probably two or three weeks after he had died and he phoned us and said, I think you should look at this chap. And of course we did. Probably in some ways the most unusual obit we have run, which nobody else ran, was Lord Lucan. Mm. And we ran him last year, the beginning of uh, last year, after the courts had ruled that he was dead. Yeah. You know, nobody's found a body. Nobody knows where he is. Generally, it's not known what, uh, what happened to him. But his family sought a ruling from the courts. And once they'd done that, we published his obituary. And we'd commissioned it some weeks beforehand. I think it was one of the most compelling Uh, It was beautifully done, very cleverly done, and um, was probably unexpected. It brought together everything that everybody knew, but it took everyone through the events and I think uh, painted a rich picture of him, which maybe was not altogether known. And therefore, I think it did add something to the Lucan story. So let's talk about that other category of people, the really famous people. Oh, yeah. Presumably there's a store, is there, so that if Prince Philip dropped dead today, there's an obituary ready to go. How often does that get updated? There is an obituary of Prince Philip ready to go, and the current version was written last year. Just as there is an obituary of the Queen, um, and that was first written in the early 1950s, um, was updated again last year uh, in the aftermath of the last big celebration, which was the Diamond Jubilee, I think. So we're continually updating obituaries of that 
kind. I think also styles change under the current editor of the Times, John Witherow. Uh, he wants far more anecdotes, far more colour and insights into the family. So we have to take uh, the stock obits we've got. We've got about um, 5,000 wow. or so that have been built up over 60 years or more. Most of them when it comes to publication, I need rewriting or editing very heavily. And it's very rare that you can go into the library, pull out an obituary and put it straight in the paper. You're not dealing so much with death, but celebrating life. You're celebrating someone's achievements, telling the story of uh, usually a successful life, or at least uh, in part a successful life, where people have achieved great things in, in their lives. I think when you're writing a feature article about someone in this respect, call it an obituary, you're researching a life, a biography, it's fascinating, and I don't think you dwell on the death, so to speak. But there are times, I think, particularly when people die young, there are some very sad stories, or have been very sad stories, of, um, of people who have gone young, and you find out a lot about them and their families and everything, and I think it does, it does touch on you. One of the things which strikes me as an individual more than anything else is the number of people who loomed so large in my childhood in the late 50s and 60s the sort of television stars television was coming into very much coming into its own there and the pop stars of the day everything who regularly feature on our obituaries pages now mm-hmm. um, I find that quite uh, quite a moment when uh, I get my sort of flashback to be, being a child uh, and it happens quite regularly because events and personalities that loomed so large then are coming through the pages I edit it's a way that people measure out their own life isn't it I mean you saw that really clearly I think with Bowie's death last year that for a lot of baby boomers or people born just after that yes. there's someone who was younger than them yes. who was cooler than them yes. who died yes it was an incredible reaction to, to Bowie's death probably more than any other I can think of in the past few years mm. he had an enormous impact and what about when there are massively unanswered questions I mean Michael Jackson springs to mind here where you know there was a court case but nothing was ever pinned to him you know you type his name into a search engine one of the first things you're going to see are questions about child abuse and yet unassailable musical legend there's an incredible story there about you know child through to teenager through to pop star how much emphasis do you give something like that which you know maybe in 50 years time might be the story but isn't now well um i think it's a big obituary and that's a complex obituary as well you cover the music and the huge impact of um his music but you also tell the story of this troubled life and i think it's uh, you don't hold back you give you give the whole story, uh, and I think if you look at the archive, there are some obituaries that you'd actually like to <laughs> write again. Jimmy Savile is a classic example, mm. where um, the obit was a, a great tribute to him. To his charitable work held him up in high esteem, and if you go to the library and look at it, you think, "My goodness, we got that wrong." Everyone got it wrong. But it does make you think the obituary is not necessarily the last word. And then there are the very notable people who die very suddenly and no one expected them to. Yes. Um, I'm (laughs) trying to think of an example. I mean, obviously George Michael was recent, although he'd had trouble with drugs in the past. I guess you had something. Uh, Well, no, no, we did. We did have it. Figures like that we commission all the time. I mean, last week we were having a look at um, 
Kirk Douglas ch- turned a hundred recently, mm. so we had a good check through him. It's a good bet. You know, you heard we heard some considerable time ago that John Hurt had cancer. His obit was written and up to date. And Clive James has been very ill for a long time, and his actually he seems to have um, lived a. Um, a great deal longer than people expected him, or he himself expected. Much to his own and we've probably we've, <laughs> and has written a great deal since we had his obituary rewritten a couple of years ago, um, and so that's uh, com- is being updated all the time. But we sometimes we're caught out. Um, Gene Wilder died yeah. uh, late last year. Uh, and we hadn't got a strong obit on him at all. And we had to wait a day, which was absolutely infuriating because the Telegraph did have a good one. They put it up online uh, and we were a day behind. It does happen. It happens to them. It happens to us. Uh, I think um, that's the way it goes sometimes. But you're always aware of commissioning those people, uh, really prominent people. We do try to make sure we've got good obits in the style we want, ready to go. So even if they're relatively young and nothing in their career suggests that they are about to have a tragic accident. Yeah, I mean, we do. There are, I mean, certainly we commissioned Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton um, at the start of the American election campaign. We've even, during Brexit, uh, we commissioned um, Nigel Farage. You never quite know what what uh, what happens, what's coming next, and so we're very aware, and we are uh, commissioning all the time. I mean, sometimes there are quite funny consequences. I think some years ago we were doing uh, an obit of the American writer Bill Bryson, who happened to be um, worked for the Times at uh, one stage or another, and so we got a rumour that he had um, taken out British citizenship. And my colleague, and he was um, a chap called Andrew Riley, had phoned um, Bryson's agent and said, look, can I speak to you in complete confidence? We're, d- we're doing a stock obit on Bill Bryson. Can you tell us whether he took out British citizenship or not? And the agent had said, OK, well, look, I'll try to find out for you and uh, I'll get back tomorrow. And uh, the following day, um, Andrew got a call and it was Bill Bryson. <laughs> and he said, uh, I want you to know that um, I am still an American citizen. I haven't taken out British citizenship. Uh, as it happens, I'm writing a feature for the Times at the moment. And I hope to goodness my article appears long before yours. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone ever asked to read their obituary? Um, no. I have had people ringing up asking if we'd be interested in writing their obituary (laughs) while they're still alive. (laughs) And we have interviewed people directly uh, for their obituary, but it doesn't happen very often. That's a fascinating interview. People must be prepared to say things that they know are only going to be published after they've died. Yes. That they wouldn't say when they're alive. Well, I think there there are some newspapers, particularly in America, which have done video obits. And it's a chance for um, the subject maybe to say things which uh, they wouldn't normally say in the um, uh, normal run of things. Uh, but we we tried with a handful of people to see if they'd be interested in doing a video bit, a sort of uh, video testimony. And we haven't had any takers yet. We had a couple who put us on hold and said they'd think about it and get back to us. But the majority just said no. Have you ever had to write an obituary of someone you know? Uh, yes, I have. I have. Uh, there was uh, a friend who died last year who was um, an architect who I knew a lot about. 
and I think that was that was quite difficult. Must be hard to write in the sort of clinical journalistic yeah. style about someone you're emotionally involved with. It is, uh, and I, I didn't actually write the obituary. I handed it over to someone else and gave them a lot of information. I think it's very difficult sometimes to. I don't think you necessarily should mm. uh, write the obituaries about people you're very close to. I think you have to take a stand back and give it to someone who can be perhaps be more objective. It's time for the foxhole. All the stuff you need to get in your ears before you get on down this evening with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Listen to our stuff before you reveal your pubic fluff. What have you been up to this week? Well, recently I was at the University of Cambridge Mm -hmm. uh, where I was there for a panel chat about contraception, but I ended up getting very, very angry about a new product called Icon. Have you heard about this? Should be in Ollie's section, really. Go on. This is very zeitgeisty. It's supposedly a new smart condom. But in fact, it's actually a cock ring that you wear at the base of your penis, like a lot of cock rings, that hooks up to an app and it contains a little sensor that gathers lots of fucking useless information, (laughs) like how many thrusts you've made during a particular sex session or your girth which I imagine doesn't really change monumentally from, no. from one from one lay to another. I'll tell you also, um, sex is not really an activity that needs to be gamified. Do you know well, what I mean? Like, by all means, gamify your trip to the shops to see how many steps you took as you went to pick up the milk, because that is boring. I'm entertained enough when I'm having sex. Well, there are some aspects of sex which have been very successfully and usefully gamified, like um, Kegel balls that help you do pelvic floor exercises to strengthen your vaginal or your internal muscles. Yeah, but that's because that's boring. Uh, it can be. The thrusting is not boring. The thrusting no. shouldn't be boring. Oh, it anyway. shouldn't be. And it, in any case, <laughs> once, you know, once you and know how many thrusting, thrusts you're doing, how is that useful to improve yeah. your sex life? Well, at exactly. All? More thrusts doesn't mean better anyway. Does not it? at all. Yeah. No. Time for this week's listener question, which, as ever, is sponsored by responsible purveyors of genuine STI preventing actual contraceptives yes mycondom.com alex tell us about them as well as stocking thousands of condoms in different sizes and and textures and colors and tastes uh, they also sell sex toys including the satisfier pro 2 tell me about it it's a women's sex toy that actually as well as buzzing sucks it it works on with suction Mm -hmm. on the clitoris and Mm. it's uh, it's got rave reviews from fanny owners nationwide (laughs) this week's listener question is from a chap who once again has chosen to remain anonymous these are all genuine questions they always are but you do have the option not to give your name if you so choose and this person has chosen not to they say alex my partner and i have never had a particularly active sex life but over the last few years she just isn't interested I have two questions, really. One is if, Alex, you have any tips on how to deal with different sex drives. I think I have a pretty average sex drive going on previous relationships. My second question would be more whether Alex has any suggestions on how to increase her, my partner's, desire for sex generally. Differences in sex drive... Dead common. Very common. Yeah. Almost impossible to 
find someone whose sex drive is going to be absolutely the same as you. Or even if you both are really keen on lots of sex all the time, the moments when you want it may not necessarily correlate, even if you're you're wanting it to the same degree. Does that make sense? It does. And then the classic thing, of course, is that when people start dating and they have their first fumbles, they might both be very into it. That doesn't mean five years down the line they no, both still want change. it as regularly. Yeah, life life changes. People evolve. Uh, sometimes you have children or age changes your sex drive or hormonal changes, contraception, all sorts of things. And stress as well really affects people's sex lives. Your day-to-day life is often reflected in the bedroom. But, I mean, this chap, he says his partner and he have never had a particularly active sex life. I mean, that hints at frustration all along. You know, yeah, let's sounds imagine like... she wanted sex once a fortnight and he wanted it every few days. He's now saying over the last few years, she just isn't interested. That sounds bad, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like the greatest situation, but I think the first thing to do to improve matters, and this is boring, I know, because it's the answer to so so many things, is they've got to talk about this. They need to communicate with each other because until he knows why she's gone off sex, it's going to be really difficult for him to help and really difficult for them to meet in the middle and make the parts in the middle of themselves meet each other. Um, So I have a technique called the care, air and share technique, which might help in this circumstance. Care, air and share. share. So first of all, you need to show your partner that you care about them as a person, about your relationship. So you're not just coming at them with an accusation like, hey, we never have sex anymore. It's frustrating me and upsetting me and it's your Mm -hmm. fault. Um, Say something like, hey, it really matters to me that our relationship is as great as it can be. Or, hey, I I really love being around you. And, you know, I love making love to you. And I, I, I want our relationship to be as strong as possible. So you've laid the foundations that this conversation is one we're having because I want things to be good for both of us and I care about you Mm. uh, rather than starting an argument. And actually when you have this conversation is important too isn't it? Probably not when you've just got into bed and have been declined sex for another day you know probably when I don't know when you're both awake and not drinking and you know it's a sensible Outside of the bedroom is usually a a good spot yeah because people feel very vulnerable within that environment Mm. it can be quite loaded. Often talking about sex outside of sexual context keeps people calmer and means that you get more honest responses rather than just emotions Mm. flying around. So first up, you've shown you care. Mm. Next is to air your problem. Say, uh, I can't help but notice recently that I'd really love to have sex with you, but it seems like something you're not interested in. And then the share bit comes when you invite them to share their ideas which means that the conclusion you're coming to is a mutually agreed upon one. It's some, it's a pact you're making as a twosome rather than you giving them an ultimatum or telling them that what you ought to be doing or something like that. So that the share bit comes by saying, you know, is there anything I could do that you could tell me that would help you feel more interested in that? Or is there anything that we can do together that would excite you? What would you like to do? And I think actually, I'm just speaking as a man, I think that maybe is the bit that when men have this issue with a woman, they feel actually is the bit they're nervous about discussing. Because it's it's more comfortable to be accusatory. It's more comfortable to say, why aren't you having sex with me? That's easy. That's not your fault then. Yeah. But when you have the sharing bit where your partner might say back to you, well, it's because you're not very generous or it's because you come too soon or it's because, you know, you don't do it like you love me. That's the bit where you think, I don't want to have to have that conversation. I just want to have sex more regularly again. 
And that can be a really, you know, if, you, if your partner's response is, well, actually, all this time you think your fiddling and diddling has been turning me right on, it's been turning me off like a light switch, yeah, my friend. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you have to be prepared for the answer maybe to be something that you don't want to hear. Yeah. But remember to keep in mind that ultimately what you're going to do here is what is shared will be the key to improving matters. So this is the beginning of a journey to make things better. Unless you have this conversation, you're still just going to stay in the same place as now, which is not getting the sex that you that, that would satisfy you. But as you say, it's a compromise, isn't it? Realistically, you know, I mean, it's, like I say, we don't know what the numbers are, but let's say she wants sex every two weeks and he wants it twice a week. Yeah, they might end up compromising on once a week. It's it's not going to be what he wants. So, you know, how to deal with There that. are still things to do that, that might help. I mean, for a start, it might be worth considering the time of day that you're having sex. We don't know about this, uh, this man's partner's uh, lifestyle, but if they're always having sex uh, or if he's always making a pass at her late on a weekday, she might be really, really tired. Yeah, try a Sunday morning. Set your alarm a little bit earlier yeah. and, and try having, yeah, try morning sex. I often recommend that partners share a shower together because not only does it relax them both, um, but also you have to wash anyway. So people, when they go, oh, my day's too, too panicked, I don't have time for that. You're going to have to lather up anyway if you have good personal hygiene. So why not share that and make it turn it into an intimate moment? There may be things that he can do that aren't directly related to sex that will help her relax. If the problem is that she's not in the mood for sex because she's feeling stressed about work or her head's still busy with, with thoughts of other things, then maybe what they need to do is work out for a way for her to decompress. Or if she feels like she's coming into the house at the end of a really, a really hurried, harried day and then she's being asked for something else from her partner, then it can feel like an imposition yet another job on her to-do list rather than something enjoyable which sex should be so it might be worth them working out how they can help relax each other together other things they can do are plan it there's a big emphasis in a lot of people's idea of what good sex is on spontaneity Mm. and they think oh well if you're not just having sex at a drop of a hat then it's not good you know what's what's romantic about scheduling into the diary but in fact that can not only be practical and mean that they both put that time specifically aside, but it means that they can build up to it. They can send some sexy texts all day. They can maybe plan a special date. The build up can really help her to get in the mood. I mean, this is often actually what days like Valentine's Day and anniversaries are about. Isn't oh, yeah. It? They're it's, an it's excuse kind of, it's to implicitly, for 20, well, we're obviously going to have sex that day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then finally, if she still really doesn't want to have penetrative sex, There are still sexual things you can do if you agree upon it together, which will allow for the fact that she's not in the mood to have him inside her. One of them is something I call the purple pass. Go on. It's so named after Prince, the purple god himself, um, because in his song Alphabet Street, there's a line where he says, uh, tonight I'm just not in the mood, I think I'd rather watch. Sometimes if if you want to get off, but your partner doesn't, they can give you permission to masturbate and, and perhaps in front of them. And that's the purple pass. They're giving you the pass to wank. That's a difficult conversation to have. Although I suppose, as you say, if you're having it out of the bedroom, it's easier. Yeah. You've never asked for that before. That's a difficult thing to suddenly put on the menu, isn't it? But there's always going to be an element of difficulty here. The mm. choice you have is, 
am I going to continue to have a difficult sex life that upsets me because I'm not getting, I, I don't feel I'm being satisfied mm. or am I going to have a difficult conversation? Mm. I choose the conversation over the frustration every single time. Well, our desire remains undimmed for your sexual questions. And if you've been satisfied mutually by Alex's answers today, <laughs> then how can you submit a question? Just wander on over to our website, which is modernmanman.co.uk. Click feedback and you can remain anonymous if you like. Then just whiz your questions in our direction. And if you prefer to, well, listen in this case rather than watch, that's fine. That's our purple pass for you. Thanks again to our friends at mycondom.com as well. If you want to buy a condom or plenty from them, what do you need to do? If you use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, then you'll get 15% off. Wit woo. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man. But there is just time to squeeze in a new Manbassador. It's John from Harrogate. He says, loving the show, Ollie. I've been listening for over a year now, so I thought it was well past time I made a contribution. As a card-carrying introvert, I particularly enjoyed your recent episode on shyness. It really struck a chord with me and made me do a lot of soul-searching and reflection. Uh, John, if you truly are an introvert, then you'll probably find this dedication painful to listen to. But I nonetheless hereby appoint you Manbassador for Harrogate. Uh, if you would like to be a Manbassador, just buy us a beer at modernman.co.uk or write us a review at itunes.com slash man. Our theme is by Django Django. They are brilliant. Uh, and stand by for our record of the week. It's by new artist Tender Central. It's called Lava and it's available to stream now thanks to Boomting Recordings. I'm Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you next Tuesday. This passes my guide And the heat on my soul I'm seeking you Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.